My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Hey, Sunrise Church, this is Pastor James. Baby Lion and I are down in Southern California this week with my CB Northwest job. We're talking about revitalizing churches. We're talking about replanting churches and planting brand new churches. And so we are all a part of that at Sunrise Church. For 40 years, we have been just so excited about leading people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what we get to do. And that's what we get to be a part of. We get to help people connect in a relationship with God, to get to know that there is a, a true God that loves them so much that they that God sent his only son to die on a cross for them. Then we get to help people grow in that relationship with God by being in relationship with God, his word, one another, understanding the Holy Spirit and why God has even put them on this planet today. And then we get to help people serve. We get to model serving. We get to serve like Jesus did, be the hands and feet of our God in the world today. And then we get to lead others on that relationship. We get to make disciples who make disciples. And I'm so excited about that. I'm so excited to be your pastor. I don't get to preach this weekend. Pastor Shane's going to do the honors this weekend. But I want to tell you about a great opportunity we have with our watch parties. Every Sunday, we stream our services at 11 o'clock. And many, many, many people, in fact, more people are watching online than would be in our buildings. And so we get the opportunity to expand that opportunity with watch parties. What's a watch party? Well, if you watched last week, Pastor Kevin demonstrated that. It is an opportunity to open your home, to open your heart, to open your mouth and invite people in, to welcome them into your place into your maybe your business into your your home or maybe your apartment complex or maybe a social gathering space where you can invite people to church where you are participate together have some meal watch the service together pray together be a part of sharing life together and then we get to do that now one day we'll get to regather together and we keep hoping and praying for that and I don't know, the odds aren't looking good right now. But you know what? Our God is bigger than that. And he's doing a great thing. I think he's doing a new thing. And I would ask you, if you have not gathered other people in your home, if you have not yet caught the vision of opening up your heart to people, that you would do so and open your doors, invite them in. There might be some people in your neighborhood that would love to come to church in your home. They might not ever make it to the doors of sunrise, but they'll come into your home. Why don't you take a risk? Why don't you step out in faith, invite someone to your home, maybe have brunch together, show the service together, talk about it. We'll have our talking points. We'll have our questions. We'll have our you know, messages already there for you as a way to serve you as you participate in leading others on the journey of Jesus Christ and knowing him. So God bless you. I uh, can't wait for the message, can't wait for participating, and I'll be back next week.
Well, hello, everyone. As I get started here this morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. I hope you have your Bible with you, no matter where you are, maybe in your living room, your kitchen, maybe you're outside watching on your smartphone, wherever, wherever you're watching right now. I hope that you have your Bible. Maybe it's right there on your app or you have one of those old-fashioned kinds that look like a book. What are those? Uh, but turn there. I'm so glad to, that you have joined us here this morning, whether you're on Facebook Live or YouTube Live or at our, on our Sunrise homepage at isunrise.com. So glad that you found us. Uh, please be sure, if you're on Facebook Live, you're on YouTube Live, say hello. We're a community. There's people there saying hello to each other. Let us know that you're a part of this because we are a church. Maybe right now we're not here gathered together. We're scattered around, but we're still Jesus' church. We're still Sunrise Church. And if you're a guest who's found us, I'm especially glad that you joined us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Shane. I serve as the administrative pastor here at Sunrise and part of the teaching team. And it's a delight to continue in this teaching series. We're called Questions I've Wanted to Ask God. This is the fourth Sunday. And Pastor James, as he mentioned in that intro video, he did the first three uh, pretty big ones, you know, I picture Pastor James in, a, in a, like a, a big arena, you know, and he's, he's in the heavyweight division tackling questions like, why are we so racist? What is God really like? Uh, why does God allow evil, pain, and suffering? You know, the biggies. And so just kind of picture him tapping out and me tapping in, and, and I'm just jumping in this week with another big question. And these are difficult questions. And one of the reasons it makes it so difficult is when you get right down to it, there really aren't any satisfying, definitive answers. That's why I think I found Pastor James's illustration at the beginning of his message last week about going through the blizzard and seeing the, just the red lights on the, on the semi-truck in front of him is so important to us because we're not looking for definitive answers. We're looking for clues. We're looking for best explanations on these difficult questions. And I think one of the other reasons that this is difficult is because I actually, I think God made it this way. Uh, several years ago, I was reading through the Bible, as I often do, and, and it was one of those days where it seemed like a verse that I'd read a number of times just jumped off the pages to me. You ever had that happen to you? That's why I love the Bible. It's fresh always. I've read it for most of my life, and yet it never gets old. It always has something for me, and it doesn't matter if I've read it before. Uh, this particular morning, I was reading through the book of Deuteronomy, you know, one of those tough ones, one of those you have to work to get through, but there's such good stuff there, and and all of a sudden, boom, this verse just jumped off the page. It's Deuteronomy 29, 21, I want to just put it up here real quick. It's pretty amazing. That's not what's supposed to come up there right now. But maybe something else will come up there. We'll wait for it. We'll wait for it. The joys of technology, right? Oh, look at that. There it is. Deuteronomy 29, the Lord our God has secrets known to no one. Did you know that God keeps secrets? How about that? But that's not all. He says we are not accountable for them. But we and our children are accountable forever for all the things that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. There are things in this universe that we will never know for certain because God keeps secrets. And sometimes we can get really distracted by the things we don't know and we miss the things we already know and we're not really obeying and it's almost like a distraction. Uh, but that's another sermon for another time. Please hear me what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we don't ask the questions. 
I'm not saying we don't seek really hard for answers. I'm just basically saying we need to approach these questions with humility, realizing that God is the one who is the one who reveals what's true. He's the one who reveals how we can know what's true. So with that as a lead-in, I want to broach another tough why question that we find ourselves asking. And that is, in the face of great tragedies, God, why do you do nothing? Why do you do nothing? If, if God is who he says he is, if he's good and powerful, how can he just stand by and do nothing in the face of such great injustices? I think when we find ourselves asking this question, it's usually for one of two reasons. Either we personally or someone we love is in the midst of a deep crisis of some kind, or we're observing some massive crisis, maybe even on a global scale, either going on right now, or maybe we're reading about it in the past, and we're just wondering, God, how, how can you do nothing in the face of that, whether it's a, you know, a massive famine in Africa, or, or uh, political chaos going on in South America, or, or, or unrest somewhere else, or in this country right now, the racial injustices and unrest that we face right now. God, in the midst of all this, why do you do Nothing. So we ask the question, either, in the, either it's a personal crisis or it's a big crisis. And what makes the person in my position have, have a little difficulty with this is there's basically two different responses that could be necessary. The, the first response is might be what we might call a, a pastoral response. If you're, somebody's in the middle of the crisis, they need care and compassion. If, another answer they may need, though, is they may need a theological or a philosophical answer. The reason this gets difficult is because if you encounter somebody in the midst of a crisis and you give them a theological or a philosophical answer when they need compassion and care, you, I, can do great harm. And so I needed to address that right up front because I don't know where you're at. But I have to imagine that some of you watching here today are in the midst of a, of a personal crisis. Maybe you just lost your job, or, or maybe you're in the midst of a financial challenge. You don't know how you're going to make it to the end of the month. You don't know if you're going to have a place to live at the end of this month. Maybe you just received a, a difficult medical diagnosis. Maybe you're in the, right in the middle of a divorce. Maybe, maybe a loved one just passed away. Maybe it's simply that, not simply, but maybe it's that you're isolated right now because of this whole coronavirus thing and, and you can't see others and your loved ones can't see you and you're alone right now. Wondering if anybody cares. And so I just want to address right up front, please let your church care for you. Let Sunrise care for you. Right now, uh, if you're watching on Facebook Live, you can, you can put your need in the, in the feed there. If you're on YouTube Live, you can put your need in the feed there. We have pastors that are, that are paying attention to that, that are responding there. We have the, the online connection card. You can put a prayer request there. You can email us at pastors at isunrise.com. There's so many ways to reach out to let us know. Please, would you be courageous and do so? Let us care for you. So when you're in the middle of a, of a personal crisis, or maybe somebody else is in the middle of a personal crisis, a pastoral response is necessary, at least at first. But at some point, that's not enough. <laughs> at some point, you're going to need a theological or philosophical answer. You need to know who God is. You need to know what God is like. You need to know how it is that God acts and when he doesn't act. 
You see, when you're in the middle of a storm, uh, good theology may not be helpful like as an answer from somebody, but when you're in the middle of the storm, having a solid, lived-out theology is a very important foundation to be able to survive storms. Uh, Jesus touched on this at the end of one of his biggest messages called the Sermon on the Mountain in, in Matthew chapter 7. And he writes this, or he said this, it's found there. It says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and though floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But then there's another kind of house. Anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When it rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Good theology helps us understand the person and the actions of God so we can understand why it seems like sometimes God does nothing in the face of tragedy. Here at Sunrise, when we want to know the person and the works of God, we go to the Bible. And in particular, we go and look at the life of Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus, you see God. That's what Jesus said. And it's captured in John chapter 14, where Jesus told his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You look to Jesus, you see God. And so what we need to ask then is if if we want to know why God sometimes does nothing in the face of tragedy, we should look at the life of Jesus and ask, was there ever a time when somebody was in the middle of tragedy that Jesus did nothing? And that's why I asked you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11 because that's a definitive statement. It's a, it's a great picture of it. And so I, I, I want to read through this, most of this story here this morning. That's why I want you to have it in your Bible. Of course, we're going to have the verses up here on the screen as well. So let's dive in in verse 1 and, and take a look at what's going on in this story. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. So we're introduced here to three friends of Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now you may recognize the names Mary and Martha because they appear at other points in the Jesus story, including the one referred to here where Mary poured the perfume on Jesus' feet. So they have these, they're close friends of Jesus from all that we can tell. And sadly, as we learn here, Lazarus got very sick. And so his sisters, you know, obviously sent word to Jesus because they knew that he healed sick people. He was there. They were there with him. Uh, he, he healed lots of sick people. So surely if they let Jesus know that their brother is sick and he's a good friend, surely Jesus will act, right? Let's see in verse 4. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Now, is it just me or does that sound a little callous? Uh, I mean, really? A good friend is sick? It's kind of like Jesus is saying, I I got more important things to do. Hey, he's not going to die anyway. Don't worry about it. But my friends, Jesus is starting with a very important truth, a truth that we often lose in our everyday. 
He's letting his disciples know this, and he's letting his disciples then and now know this. And so what I want to do is as we walk through this story, I want to highlight some very fundamental truths that we need to hang on to when it seems like God does nothing. And the first one is captured right here, and that is that God is central to the universe. God is central to the universe. All things, including us, exist to glorify God. In other words, to reflect the beauty, the wonder, the magnificence of who God is and what God is like. That's what's central. Now, in our therapeutic age, where we've basically been suckling on self-esteem messages since we were really small, this sounds wrong. Wait a minute. I I thought I was the center of the universe. And so that's why Jesus needs to start here. Because we need to understand what God is like and how God acts and the fact that he's central to the universe. Because our tendencies when we ask questions like, why does God do nothing? That question is me-centric. Or at best, it's human-centric. The Bible teaches us, Jesus teaches us, that God is the center of the universe. We exist for God. He doesn't exist for us. He's the creator. We're the created. We are created to reflect something of him. So that's where Jesus starts. If we want to get in on the best life, it starts by understanding that God is central, not us. So that's Jesus' starting point, but he goes on from there. So let's pick up the story in verse 5. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Notice, Jesus loved them. He loved them. He loved them. And he did nothing for two days, even though he knew his good friend Lazarus was sick. And here we come to a second important truth we got to know as we're looking at this question is that sometimes love means inaction. (laughs) Now, I realize that when we're in the middle of the crisis, we equate love with action. I mean, come on, somebody please do something, right? Please save me. I need rescued here. Do something. But sometimes love involves waiting. Now, I have the privilege of being a parent, and I know many of you do too, or maybe you're around kids, you know this to be true. Sometimes, especially when it's a young kid, but sometimes it's a teenager, and they're crying out to you in frustration, save me in a sense, or do something, right? And sometimes you don't respond, not because you don't love them, but because you love them and because you want more for them than what they're facing right now. And you know that it's actually sometimes they need to go through the hardship in order to learn and to grow. Sometimes love does nothing. But what about in the waiting? The situation gets worse. Actually, that happens in this story. Lazarus dies. Even though Jesus just got done saying the sickness is not going to lead to death, Lazarus dies. And then Jesus' response next only adds to the confusion. In verse 14, as we pick up, so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. This is another one where you go, Jesus is glad? His good friend Lazarus just died, and he says, I'm glad? And again, we need to pay attention here to what Jesus is up to. 
You see, God, and we get this pictured through Jesus right here, is God has more in mind for us than making our lives happy and comfortable. Like a loving father, he wants to grow us in maturity to become more fully who he made us to be. So here he's saying, so now that you will really believe, I have something more that I want for you. But meanwhile, can you imagine the disappointment that Mary and Martha might be feeling? They don't know any of this, of course. All they know is they sent words to Jesus and didn't hear a peep. They're waiting. And in the meantime, not only is Lazarus still sick, he dies. Can you imagine their doubt? Imagine their disappointment? I thought Jesus was our friend. I thought, I thought Jesus loved us. Why didn't he come? Why didn't he send help? Why didn't he send any word at all? Why did he do nothing? And we see their confusion and their frustration come out when Jesus finally did show up as we continue in verse 17 in the story. He says, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been dead in his grave for four days. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that you will give me, give us whatever we ask. Martha confronts him with basically the same question we're asking this morning. You could have done something. Why didn't you? Notice, though, I think at the end here, and this is, I don't know this for sure, but I just get the sense that with that final thing there that she's hedging a bit. Uh, you ever do that in your prayers? You know, you want to get angry at God. God, where are you? Why, why aren't you responding? Not, not, not that I don't trust you. You know, you kind of have that impulse of the, is lightning going to come and hit me? I mean, I know you got some other things that you got going on in the universe right now, but, right? I think that might be what's going on here. And so let's see how Jesus responds in the next verse. He says, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises and at the last day. And, and again, I just can't can't escape the thought that, again, she's hedging here, that we might look at this last statement with a little bit of a, you know, that tone, that sanctimonious religious kind of tone, you know, when you say a kind of a religious platitude of some kind. Oh, I know, you know, I know your, I know your mom died, but she's happier in heaven. Oh, I know it hurts now, but one day, you know, all pain's going to go away, and not that those things aren't true, but we use it like in a form of a religious platitude to cover over the pain, to cover over the longing. And by doing so, we miss something very important. I would say we even miss Jesus that can only be found in the middle of the pain and the longing. Jesus, we find out, isn't much interested in nice-sounding religious platitudes either. In verse 25, we see his response to Martha Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you trust me? Jesus wants one thing and one thing, not only from Martha, but from all of us. Will you trust me? Not some other time, not for the by and by, not out there, not in heaven, but right here, right now in the midst of the confusing moment where it seems like God is doing nothing. And here's where I think we get important truth number three through this story. 
And that is this, that relational trust is the irreplaceable ingredient when God seems absent. Relational trust is the irreplaceable ingredient when God seems absent. You see, when God seems absent, we need to cling to the truth. We need to cling to the truth that, that God is near. That's what he promises. Here's a reality that comes in a relationship, not only with God, but in a relationship with others. And that truth is this. At some point in time, if it hasn't happened already, it will happen. At some point in time, there will be an inescapable gap between what the other person does and what you want them to do. And in that gap, we will either fill that gap with either trust or suspicion. Trust or suspicion. This happens in any relationship. Think about it. Let's say, let's say um, you, you're, you're at home and, and you got the kids are going nuts or, or you have an important project that needs to get done and, you're, and your spouse is supposed to be home at a certain time and they're late. Or, or maybe your teenager is out and they've missed curfew. <laughs> maybe your boss calls you in for an unexpected meeting in, in the midst of a difficult emo, in, in, uh, economic times. Maybe you're waiting in the doctor's office and you're hoping and wanting for that oncology report to come back negative. What I want to happen, what actually happens, and we're going to fill that gap with trust or suspicion. You see, the number one promise throughout the Bible that God gives his people is, I am with you. I am with you. Even though it doesn't seem like it, maybe. I am with you. I am near. The question is, will you trust him even when you don't see evidence that he is near? Here in this story, when Jesus arrives, Martha expresses her doubts. He challenges her to understand who he is. He calls her to trust him even though she doesn't understand. And he challenges her understanding of who he is. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Will you believe in me? Will you trust me? And she does respond in verse 27 with trust. She says, yes, Lord, I have always believed in you. You are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. And now as we, as we read forward in the story, we're going to see that G Jesus is going to have another interaction, this time with Mary. And, and we're going to see a very different response from Jesus. So if you pick up the story in verse 29, we see this interaction. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. And when the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And if you, if you have your Bible open and you look back a few more few verses, you'll see that this is the exact same thing that Martha said to Jesus. But his response is remarkably different. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. He told them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. Then Jesus wept. Jesus confronted Martha 
but he consoled Mary. He challenged Martha's theology, but he empathized with Mary. You could picture him standing there, weeping. Maybe he's got his arm around her. He has that moment. He, remember, he's God in human flesh. He can make something happen. He can make anything happen right now, but he takes the time in that moment to be with her, to weep with her. And this is important truth number four from this story is that God has compassion on the brokenhearted. Where is God when life hurts? He is near and he has compassion on you. He's empathizing with you in your pain and sorrow. He's saying, I know your pain. I felt it too. You see, the God of the universe didn't stay out there. He gave up all the rights and privileges of the Godhead, came and became a human so that he could know our experience, so that he could, he could endure what we endure, so that he can, he can have compassion on us. And then he did what we couldn't do in order to have a relationship with a perfect God. He lived a perfect life. He died for your sins and mine. He rose from the dead so that we could have an eternal relationship with God. And now, sitting on the throne of heaven, he draws near to us in our sorrow, and he weeps with us. Then in our story, Jesus does what only he could do. You know, at the beginning of the story, Mary and Martha contacted Jesus because they wanted to heal him to heal their brother. But at the end of the story, we see that Jesus did more than that. He did more than they ever asked or they could even imagine. As so we pick up the story in verse 39. He said, roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded once again, challenging her theology. Maybe she was more of the stubborn type, right? Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here. And once again, he says it. He says it so many times through this chapter. So that they will believe. And whenever you see that word believe, think relational trust. So they will believe that you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. <laughs> Love that. Instead of healing a sick man, Jesus raised him from the dead. What Mary thought was their worst moment in life, when Jesus was doing nothing, turned into a profound moment where Jesus did more than they ever asked, or more than they even imagined. And here we arrive at, at at important truth number five from the story, that God is always, 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 always working things for good. When you put your relational trust in Jesus, you can know this to be true, even when it doesn't seem true. So back to our question, dear God, why do you do nothing? And what we can learn about God, who he is and what he's like from through the life of Jesus, I think we can answer that question. Why do you do nothing? Because I love you. Because I love you. And I want to do for, for you something more than you could ever ask or imagine. Will you trust me? Now you still may be thinking, but how? <laughs> how? Yes, I want to trust you, but how? How do I learn how to trust God, especially when times are hard? And I kind of like to answer this question by, like, kind of like Jesus did with asking another question. How would you learn to run a marathon? 
I think the answer is the same. You train for it. Both seem impossible, but they are really possible. I'm under the opinion that anybody can run a marathon. I personally don't want to, uh, but anybody could. There's training programs available. You see people of all different types and styles, no matter their abilities and disabilities, doesn't matter. They run marathons. You could, I could. Even if you've never run in your life, even if you can't right now, run to the end of the block. You can learn to do so by training. The same is true for trusting God. And if you know me at all, if you've been around me at all, if you've heard me teach at all, you know where I'm going to send you to learn how to trust God. I'm going to send you to the Psalms. The Psalms are the worship book of the Bible. The Psalms are heart-shaping poetry designed to help us take the reality of what's going on in life around us and take the longings and desires and hurts we have and orient them to God in worship, in relational trust. And so what I want to do is I want to, kind of using the model of the story about Mary and Martha, I want to take a walk through the Psalms, and what do the Psalms teach us about how we learn to trust God? And it starts the same way Mary and Martha started. You complain about it. You complain loudly. You complain boldly. You complain, you complain thoroughly to God. That's the important part, to God. Now, if this sounds strange, I mean, just go read the Psalms. Two-thirds of them have either, are either all complaint or partly complaint. Psalm 13 is a great example. And, and so especially if you're in a place of hurt or loss right now or, or, or maybe you're praying for somebody who is, I want you to pray this Psalm with me. It's not going to be on the screen. Just listen to this and let it maybe even help you take your cry and cry out to God from where you are. Listen to this. Pray this. O oh Lord... How long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul and sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. And then get this, get this. But I trust in your unfailing love. Do you hear the echoes of Jesus' story? I will rejoice because you have rescued me. Now, he's still in the struggle. He doesn't see the rescue yet, but he's believing by faith that God is already working good. He's already working to rescue him. And then he closes with this. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. By faith, I'm going to believe it. It's not, it's not a religious platitude. We cover over the pain and sorrow. No, they go hand in hand. The sorrow, the complaint, and the trust and the belief. That's what the complaint psalms teach us to do. And that's where learning how to trust God starts. Being honest, complaining. The second thing is you seek God for God's sake. Now, usually we seek God for our sake. We seek God for our rescue, right? But seek God for God's sake. That's what Jesus invited Mary and Martha to do. I am the resurrection and the life. Will you believe me? Will you seek me? Not for what I can do, but for who I am? Psalm 19 helps us to learn there are a couple ways we can do this. We can look to, Jesus, we can look to God's world. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but the first two verses, listen. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. You want to know God? Look at the universe. Look at his creation. Everything reflects the goodness of God. 
We look for him in his world. We also look for him in his word, in the Bible. Listen to this, verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 19. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Seek God for God's sake. Seek him in his world. Seek him in his word. And then the third thing. Remember that unexplainable gap? Yeah, between what you think God should do and what God is actually doing? Yeah, fill that gap with trust rather than suspicion. This is where I invite you. Psalm 131, it's my favorite psalm. It says, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself, listen to this, with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, O people of God, put your hope in the Lord now and forever. My friends, if you are in a place of waiting and wondering, if you're wondering, asking this question right now, God, why do, why do you do nothing? Please know that he loves you. He is near and he wants to do more for you than you could ever ask or imagine. He is near and he is good. Will you trust him? Pray with me. I do thank you, Father God, that you are good. You are powerful. Even when we don't see it, we have your promise that you are near. And when it doesn't seem like you're near because of our circumstances, it's really hard. But will you strengthen us? Will you equip us? Will you help us trust you? We are weak. You are strong. So I just pray for my friends no matter where they're watching right now. And I just, I just want to pause for a moment and invite you to pray right now. God, I want to put my trust in you. If you've never done that, you can do it right now for the first time. Jesus says, just come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My load is light. Just trust him. Say, Jesus, I can't do it on my own. I put my trust in you. Will you come and save me? And you know what? He promises he'll come near. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's near to those who humble themselves. And you can know that for you and that you can know that a loving God wants to work good for you. For all of us, God, would you just help us to trust you, help us to know and believe you are good. Help us to pursue you wholeheartedly. I want to do that. We want to pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.